So welcome back to the World Coffee Championships podcast. Today we're going to explore the most famous of all the competitions, the barista competition. And I'm joined by a new co-host. Nice to see you, James. Uh, my name is Sonja Björkrant. I'm from a small island up north called Iceland. I'm a roaster and a barista and a barista trainer in Iceland, you know, with my own company. And we normally say when we have our own companies that we are also cleaning ladies in our own company <laughs> because that's what we basically are. That's great. So, Sonia, I see you're in your room and it's super bright, lots of light. We're recording this, what, in the middle of July. So, yeah. does the sun set where you are? No. <laughs> Actually, uh, you know, we have 24-hour lights, so that's why it's so bright in my apartment. And I see in the corner of the room you have a... Is that a tent bag? Just after we finish off here, I'm going on a camping trip oh. uh, beside one of the waterfalls. I'm going to camp there, stay for the weekend, you know, just take in the nature. i, I got to say, Icelandic COVID lockdown doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> so, Sonia, what's been your experience with these competitions? I'm a world certified judge, but also I'm a world coffee events uh, representative. I've gone from being, you know, in all the committees for the rules and regulations in different stages. Paint a picture for me. How popular and how important are the barista competitions today? The competitions are very important for each and every country because they push quality both for machine manufacturers, they push quality for the, the roaster, they push quality for the hospitality section. So all of this comes together in uh, the barista competitions. Wow, so it's almost like the specialty coffee movement is kind of wrapped up in the evolution also of the barista competitions. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the story we're going to explore across this and the next episode. But before we go into the stories, uh, let's just talk a little bit about the sponsors. Yes, so the World Coffee Championship podcast series and this episode is supported by Victoria Arduino. Born in the early 20th century amid social and cultural transformation, Victoria Arduino broke with tradition and focused on progress, a mission it carries forward today. Victoria Arduino advances coffee knowledge and innovates across design, technology, and performance to produce machines that nurture coffee professionals' passion for espresso excellence. You can learn more at victoriaarduino.com or give them a follow at Victoria Arduino 1905. Let's focus now on how coffee looked like back in the 90s. What was it like back then? Uh, before the World Barista Championship, we only had baristas in like Italy that was like actually like a profession but in the rest of the world you were just a person that were working in a coffee shop so didn't really have any respect didn't really have any meaning people that have been traveling to italy they of course they knew espresso but uh, like in all the other countries we kind of didn't really know much about this uh, very small and short drink we were told that espresso was only uh, made by a blend. And the blend was like Central America, South America. And of course, it had to be a lot of Robusta in it. And doing the sugar test, because that's like... What was a sugar test? When you're in a bar and you have espresso, then you had to put one spoon of sugar on top of the uh, crema just to see how fast it was going into the cup. <laughs> Everybody told us that... If you have Arabica, it runs through very quickly. 
if you have Robusta, it stays on top of the crema for a long time. <laughs> and we were like amazed. Wow. And what did it taste like? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. I'm sorry that I'm saying it, but uh, many of the blends that were used mm. in the 90s were so disgusting that, you know, uh, I, I get chills just thinking about it. And nobody knew what to do. Nobody was cleaning the machines. We had like plastic tampers. So did a thing called specialty coffee even exist back in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, uh, Specialty Coffee Association of America and Specialty Coffee Association of Europe, both of those organizations, they had their small gatherings. So, okay, so we're in this environment in the 90s where espresso is, is quite a niche thing and you have these small specialty coffee organizations. And then at some point, we have a barista competition. There were various competitions around, you know, the world, but there was like one particular that was the one that actually kept everything moving, and that was the Norwegian barista competition that took place 1998. 1998. And I spoke with Tunne, the woman who helped put it all on. Uh, my name is uh, Tone Elin Liavog. It's difficult to say in English, so I have to say it in Norwegian. I was head of the Norwegian competition and also running the World Barista Championships. The coffee landscape in Europe, if I take Europe, it, it was only Italy that was like an espresso country. You could get espresso and cappuccino and so on, but it was just a machine that made it. People have no clue what a cappuccino actually was. They just pushed a button, you know. Back in the days, it was all fully automatic. Well, I remember I was on my first convention, the SEIA convention in, I think it was in Denver, Colorado, back in 98. And I was thinking, what on the earth is the business I've gone into? This is just like an old man's club. The coffee community in the 90s was definitely older men. Definitely. I think I was one of the few female and the youngest person there. But that changed with the competitions. Back in 97, we were discussing how to promote specialty coffee in general and also raise the bar of a profession that wasn't as known as today, the baristas. The establishment of the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe was emerging. And Alf Kramer was elected to its first president. And then Alf said, like, let's have a competition. Good idea. And we looked to Bukustor to see how they did it with the, the fine cuisine in the scoring sheets. And whatever can be do, done wrong in a competition, we did that first year in Norway. The first Norwegian barista event was in like a food and beverage convention. Basically, they had to do exactly the same what they are doing today. <laughs> so they had to make, you know, the espresso, the cappuccino and their signature beverage. But back in those days, they just made like two of each, two espresso, two cappuccino and two signature. And the challenge came when we had three judges so uh, it's not very polite to uh, say to two of the judges, can you sip from the same cup? 
So, so we, the solution was some straws, so they could suck it up. <laughs> the other were areas that didn't work was like, we added on like a promotional thing on this. So there was supposed to be like a photo shoot of all the beverages, especially then the signature beverages. So the problem was, so there was only two of each drink. So they served the two. One of them was taken away to like a photo studio just by the competition area, took the shots of the drink back to the judge table. So it was a constantly delay in everything because it was back and forth, back and forth all the time. So we were going around promoting this uh, barista competition thing. And Alf launched that to Mick Wheeler and a couple of other fellows in the, the board of the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe. And then Mick Wheeler called me and said, he said, like, we're going to have the first uh, European convention in Monaco 2000. Alf has said that you can put up a world competition. And I said, like, uh, a what? Yeah, you are having the Norwegian barista competition. Can you put up, like, a world barista competition? And then I was thinking about it and I said, like, yeah, that will be fine. We can do that. And so we did. Of course. Oh, my God. Can you imagine professional judges slurping up coffees through straws? Yeah, it was so crazy. And also... uh, so you didn't mention the bins. They were like spitting bins, like the wine industry has. So sometimes we were like sharing bins. Oh so there was like a, a huge bin of spit. <laughs> it was disgusting. But it was like we kind of had to do it because we were like only one set of judges. And right. maybe we were judging like 20 baristas. I mean, you can't have that much robusta in your blood, you know. I'm imagining this kind of pot, just kind of smeared black with this, you know, robusta <laughs> coffee mixed with saliva. And also having the, the judges at the table, you know, spitting, it's not really appealing as well. You know, you are a barista, you are serving your drinks to the judges and they are spitting your coffee. <laughs> I went to the farmer, we spent months preparing this beautiful coffee, roasted it to perfection. And the judge just goes... <laughs> And this was at the Norwegian Barista Championship in 1998. But this is also in the early days of WBC. Oh, really? Like in Monaco, that happened. (laughs) So, Also, Tatuna mentioned a little bit about the demographics. Mm -hmm. What was your experience as a woman in coffee back then? I actually have a very good story. It was back in Monte Carlo, the year 2000. I was listening to this Italian guy basically saying to us, the audience in a big hall, he was like, women cannot make coffee because they can't tan. So I was sitting there in the audience and, you know, listening to this guy and I couldn't believe it. You know, I came from, you know, a a company full of women and we were all tamping coffee. I wanted to you know, challenged this guy. So I waited for his speech to be finished. I went to him and I said, well, excuse me, you need to come. We have this barista competition, the first one. We have women there actually in the finals and they are making beautiful espressos. And then he actually came. He was like there in his beautiful long coat and he was looking at the competition and he was looking at me and he nodded. He nodded his hat, 
you know, for me, it was kind of like, yes, I think he got it. This kind of things just makes me personally stronger because I'm like, okay, I'm going to show them, you know, this is just like how humans are acting. You know, if we have too many suits, you will have some punks coming in. And we were the punks, you know, we were the young people coming in and like, we wanted to change. Mm -hmm. Sonia. Yeah. Paint a picture for the listener, you know. You're a barista competitor back in like 2000, going to Monaco. Mm -hmm. You're there in front of your judges. And like, what are they doing? You know, this was the time where you had a chance to meet with the people that you were in business with. So being stuck on stage, you know, that meant also that you are not, you know, doing your business. So sometimes the judges were like turning around to the audience and waving. Okay, I'll meet you later. You know, I just have to taste this coffee and spit into the bin. And it was the same with the MC. I remember Alf Kramer was the MC in, in Monte Carlo. And he is like the guy that Tuna was mentioning. So he was talking to the audience, you know, he was going with the microphone. So what do you think about this coffee? You know, what do you think how, how it looks like, you know? So kind of like while the barista was competing, influencing everybody, influencing the judges, influencing everybody, you know? So the MC kind of had like a lot of like power, you know, if you can say so. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Sonia, because I spoke with Emma Marklin-Webster. Oh. And she has a story about emceeing both when she was a competitor back in the early days. Yeah. And then also when she became an emcee herself. Oh, my God. (laughs) My name is Emma Marklin-Webster and I am a, not sure, coffee professional, maybe, on a good day. I'm from New Zealand and I first got into coffee. I hate to actually... um, remember how many years ago, maybe 23, 24 years ago. I sound like a dinosaur, of which I am. Back in the day, way back in 1860, the first New Zealand Barista Championship happened and I saw it advertised and I was like, oh, I should give that a go. So I went on to the local regional and it was very interesting, the competition at that point. It was two baristas at the same time with one panel of judges. I think we had to make two lattes and two espressos. And then we had a written test. I aced the written test, just saying. And I came second and then made it to the final up in Auckland at a hospitality show. And then, yeah, won. And then I was like, damn it, what's this world thing about? Well, Oslo 2002, interesting. Team New Zealand, I had it on my shirt. It was just me. I think I was the only barista that didn't get picked up at the airport, which is really cool. I had a mini Mazza that I brought with me from New Zealand. Great, forgot to check on the phasing and the power, so had to borrow um, Sweden's mini Mazza. It was a while till you got a coffee. I was like, just be with you in a minute. Um, But back then, there was a very large backspace area, but I don't remember any tables. It was just the floor on my suitcase. Table that you served on was a round bar leaner, just a little circle. Back in the day, the MC could just talk over just to keep the crowd busy. I was trying to explain about my sun-dried Brazilian Cerrado as the base of the coffee and the taste notes. 
but the um, MC at the time was too busy talking about snakeskin boots and what's happening in Oslo at the weekend, I think, yeah. And I I pretty much just gave in trying to over-talk him and, yeah, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll just shut up then. I ranked second going into the finals and unfortunately it all went wrong and I came fifth. After I competed in New Zealand, they wouldn't let me compete again. They're like, no, we need a fresh face. So I was like, okay. But I spent some time over in Australia with the Australian Championships and I did a spot of emceeing there. You'd be conversational because they wouldn't say anything. It's like, come on, talk. So I think I asked this one girl whether she preferred her cappuccinos wet or dry and she just stopped and stared at me. And it was just so long and I'm like, carry on, go on. But it just completely threw her off her whole presentation, unfortunately, and at the end she was like, what did he? What did he mean? What did he mean? Wet or dry? I don't understand. She was processing this question all through her routine. Wet or dry cappuccinos? How do you prefer them? It was a thing back then, you know. People liked dry foam cappuccinos, predominantly foam in the cappuccino. Well, after a, I was told I wasn't allowed to compete, I was hooked. I had that memory of that finals day in Oslo. I became a world judge the following year, and every year I went to the Worlds. It was just so much fun to be part of this greater thing than your day-to-day in the cafe. And I guess I don't look at it as a actual thinking about my career. It was just what I loved and I wanted to do, and I wanted to help other people do it as well. When you see somebody that you've nurtured or tried to push into being a judge judge at the world finals and the smile on their face, it's just, it's pretty amazing to see what they get out of it as well. I'm wavering, sorry. I get emotional. I am noted as an ice maiden, but I do get emotional, damn it. Oh my God. So I remember like, what am I talking about that uh, this MC did about the snakeskin boots? <laughs> because it was actually Tuna's snakeskin boots, you know. So she oh. was like walking around in them and he was like, oh my God, these snakeskin boots, you know. You know, we have like more samples like this, you know. We had like 2003, for example. One barista was losing time. The uh, audience could see that this barista was stressing. And then the MC was like, Oh, so what is happening? What's going wrong? And, you know, of course the barista went over time because they are like so stressed and replying to the MC, you know. But this was like a horrible moment to talk with the barista, you know. Goodness me. Well, Sonia, I'd love to shift gears a little bit now and talk a little bit about the judges and the organizers. And I'm wondering, are they getting paid? No. So this is like an interesting part of the whole coffee community and the the competition community is that none of us are getting paid. You know, we are all volunteers. And that has always been like the number one priority because, you know, it was always said like, okay, when we pay judges or if we're going to pay judges, it's going to 
be different kind of judging, you know. Mm. So that's why it's run by volunteers and, you know, trying to keep this grassroots atmosphere. So speaking of grassroots, in the early 2000s across the world, these barista competitions are happening on a national level. Absolutely, yeah. And like in 2002, like how many people actually attended the World Barista Championships? How many competitors came? 26 countries ended up competing in Oslo 2002. So that was like a huge step. Yeah, right. And, and I'm looking down the list here. You know, we have India, Lebanon, Israel, Brazil. It's much more than just Europe and America. Absolutely. Yeah, and I want to dwell on like you know, that grassroots culture, that kind of volunteerism, because when you're at one of these big trade shows mm-hmm. and there's like, oh yeah, there's a German competitor. Oh yes, and there's a Russian competitor. But what we don't see is what actually happened behind the scenes trying to put on those national competitions. It's a lot of hard work and sometimes it's not very appreciated. And I spoke with Simi Benzadon, Panama's oh, yeah. competition manager. And I heard from her just what it takes to put on these competitions. Okay, my name is Simi Benzadon and I'm a graphic designer and I also organize events. Okay, so the story of the Panamanian coffee competitions goes back to four years ago. Wilfred Lampmasters Jr. back then wanted to compete on a barista competition, but he had to bring them competition first to Panama. And on February of 2017, he got the opportunity because there was a big event called Menu Panama, that it was a culinary event. He was, yes, this is the place, that's it. Me, by that moment, I was working on graphic design, but I didn't get that much involved. It was a tent in the middle of nowhere, and Wilfred was like, hey, can you take a look at it, how it's going? And when I arrived there, the tent was falling. The sponsors were like making a line to see what was happening. The competitors, they didn't have any place to put the stuff. They were like on the sun, sweating. I remember the judges did the deliberation like outdoors and the papers were like fine. But the reviews of the competition were amazing. Everything were like smooth. But by the behind of it, I really feel bad about that year. And I was like, Wilford, you don't have the skills for it. I don't think you can do this again. So I took my note on my phone and I started writing like a huge list of improvements. Let me see if I have it here. Okay, I have it in Spanish, so I'm going to try to read them in English, okay? So it says how to improve competitions. First thing is get a good scorekeeper. Someone that has some relation with numbers. <laughs> then get a clean squat. People to clean the stations. At least make sure that the judges have a place to leave their personal stuff. Also, get them some snacks. They're going to be really starving. <laughs> so the next competition that it was Brewer's Cup. I did it by myself. It was in a hotel room, a conference room. We had like conference room for them to deliberate. We had like catering. All the things that I write down on the note was check. One of the most challenging things was understanding the grinder and the water for it. I remember like sending emails, actually like going to a chemical food lab to see if they could make like some 
water for it. My responsibility, I feel that it's with the competitors. So I want them to be like well treated, like comfortable. They have enough with the competition. They have enough struggling with the nerves. Yeah, every year I've put like around four months on organizing the competitions. You have to keep going with the promotion. You have to keep going with the interviews. You have to keep going with the newspapers. You have to keep going with the government. You have to keep going with the radios, you know, with everything because people forget. The second competition that it was Brewers Cup, zero. I didn't get paid at all. Zero, zero. It was just time. But I have two partners that they joined me two years ago. And I have find some relief on them because we split the work. We try to get sponsors for the competitors to fly to the country of worlds, but sometimes it's not that way. I think it's gonna change. Every year I feel more support, I feel more sponsors, and I feel more commit of the government. This last year we got like a sponsorship from government first time and they commit with us to do it again. All of our competitors, when they go to Worlds, they place like on the last 10. So everything you do, it's like a lot of effort. And every time that I talk to national bodies from this part of the world, I can see that they have the same struggle as me. This last year, Wilford went to Brewers Cup and he went for the first time to Boston and he ended up being 10th place. He somehow showed me like, hey, we can get to the first places if we keep working. So that's something that again motivated me. Then when the three days of competitions come, everything, it's like worth it. You forget about every struggle you have. You can see people laughing, people hugging, people crying. And somehow it's a cliche. Like coffee, unite people. You forget about every struggle you have and you feel like every single barista down there, they recognize you do the best job possible. So it's really beautiful. Wow. Wow. This story is like so full of hard work and energy. Mm-hmm. And this is the story of many uh, origins and countries that have been in the same shoes. And it's a miracle that people don't just give up at the first year. But I think they don't give up because they see how good it is for the barista profession. Yeah. And kind of bringing us back to, you know, the early 2000s, all this energy, grassroots work is taking place. And... What I want to know is, like, things come up, right? Like, problems came up with the MCs, for example. Like, how was that fixed year on year? Who was organizing it all? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, like, 2002. We had, like, a huge meeting, and we created committees. Ah. You know, we had the Rules and Regulation Committee. We had the Judges Committee, for example. But to to be honest, like, all the rules and regulation were kind of changed on the spot. Oh, very reactionary. Absolutely. And uh, I remember, like, one of the years I had to go to Oslo for, just because we needed to finish the rules uh, just before the competition. Very much last minute. 
It was Tuna and I, there was a little bit of a family crisis in uh, her family. So we had to be in the hospital for that weekend. Uh, so we were kind of just in the lobby, uh, writing the rules. We had like a lot of papers with a highlighting pen. I'm imagining, you know, people walking in with like broken arms, walking past. Two Scandinavian ladies writing rules. <laughs> right, with papers just like over the seats on the floor. Exactly. <laughs> for what? For like a barista competition no one's ever heard of? Exactly. Jeez. And I'm curious to know now. So today, if you win the competitions, you become, you know, a bit of an overnight celebrity in the specialty coffee world. And so, you know, what happened to the person who won the first barista competition in 2000? Did they become like an overnight celebrity? I mean... The guy, uh, Robert from Norway, he was the first of the first mm. World Barista Champions. He was an architect and he was already uh, kind of successful in his own life oh. before going into the competition. Oh, right. And today he's involved with a green importer called the Collaborative in Norway. But I think because social media wasn't that, you know, I mean, there was like nothing happening. He didn't feel like he's the world champion. There were some pictures of him, like, you know, of course he had the trophy and everything. But today, I don't think he has it on his business card, you know. Right, right. But that starts to change. And Tonya, I spoke with Paul Bassett, who Ooh. did win around the mid-2000s. So what's interesting about Paul's story is that, you know, before the likes of Facebook came along, mm -hmm. Paul managed to commercialize his World Barista Championship win. Absolutely. In a big way. I believe so too. And he's also a name we don't hear about so often today, unless you're in South Korea. Aha. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I'm Paul Bassett. I live in Australia. So in 2001, I land in Italy, going to my first espresso bar. And that's where it all started. You know, just being captivated by this culture of how espresso is part of the the daily routine and standing at the bar and then how it was treated differently in different parts of Italy. Sort of coming back from Italy, I sort of literally picked up the telephone book and I was like, I just need to get a job in this industry. Like it was just calling everyone, you know, I didn't care. I just needed to foot in the door. And, you know, I worked for a few different companies and started going into my first Brewster championships. At the time when I was competing, I, I didn't see the commercial success. I just saw that there might be a lot of opportunity and I didn't even know what kind of opportunity. Is it Australian? So in 2002 and 2003, I won the Australian National Barista Championship. You have five minutes into your presentation, Paul. I sourced a Mazaroba conical burr grinder and... Chosen a, this Roba grinder today. And uh, this is a conical blade grinder. It rotates at approximately 400 revolutions per minute. So we're getting the volatile aromas being released just based on that less heat, less friction. Had four different batches of coffee roasted, you know, so I could have it aged exactly the way I wanted it. I had a performance psychologist who helped get my mind in check and yeah, just really looking at how to, to navigate that whole process of what they call putting on your best performance. Looking at every single aspect of that score sheet and going, how do I get the maximum there, 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 there? And how do I be the most consistent there, there and there? Let's give the guy a hand. Come on. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you. So after I won, came back to Australia and I was broke and I was like, I, I just need, I need some, some sort of revenue coming through the door. It's very costly to go and compete. And then I was introduced to a couple of guys that were offering to talent manage me. They helped get some corporate partnerships in place. I was a, a brand ambassador for Sunbeam, helping design consumer espresso machines and grinders. And I was working with BMW as a brand ambassador for them, helping launch their one series here and putting on coffee events in all their dealerships throughout the country. San Francisco? No. This is beautiful Trieste where this year's World Barista Championships are being held. But I guess one of the most interesting things and, and challenging things that I did was the opportunity to do a television series on coffee, which was called Living Coffee. And that was a 13-part series, each episode half hour. The way this competition works is each barista has 15 minutes to prepare their workspace, machine and grinder, making sure their espresso pour like liquid gold. Like one of the other big things that we did was to go over to Japan and do a collaboration with the World Pizzaiolo and World Patissier Champion. So in 2004, we opened up the first store in Ginza in Tokyo, and that was a collaboration between myself and Mr. Sujiguchi, and he was the World Patissier Champion. So in 2009, my partners in Japan were introduced to dairy company in Korea. And I was just basically told, we're going to open up a store in, in Seoul and we'd like your involvement. And I was like, well, let's go for it. So my partners saw an opportunity in, in calling the, the stores Paul Bassett. And it's a premium experience. The fact that we were making coffee that was sweet, it was medium to full bodied, low acid, I guess it was something that really resonated with Korean palates. The store was a great success. And then, you know, following that, we just continued to open up more stores and the brand just took off. Today, we've got to uh, be approaching 110 stores. If you'd have asked me as a child, you know, do you think you'll uh, have 110 cafes in Korea in later life? I would have laughed at you. Wow. This is like every barista dream, obviously. 110 cafes in Korea named after you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always think about these things because actually, like, Iceland was the second. So, oh, you know, it's no. like a bittersweet. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. Iceland was second in the first year. Iceland was second in the third year. And it's always with females. So we were so close to win, you know, as a female as well. But, you know, but I, of course, I celebrate. And it's a, it's a joke, you know, it's a competition. So I was really impressed with how Paul Bassett actually managed to take World Burst the Champion, the title, and make it into mm -hmm. a business, which was like amazing yeah 
And he was one of the first because, you know, there are many others since. Uh, yeah, so he was the first one and, you know, everybody were talking about it. He, I don't know if it's true or not, you know, but this is what was the gossip on the street. And it mm-hmm. was about that he had made the contract with uh, BMW or Mercedes or so every time he came to a country, he could have those cars pick him up at the airport. And all the baristas were like, oh, I wish somebody would pick me up at the airport, you know. And Paul mentioned on the call how he put in months of work. He devoted almost a year to this. Exactly, exactly. But many of the baristas, they only practicing maybe for like, you know, a few weeks and then they go into the barista competition. And if the accident happened that they actually won in their own country and then they were like, oh my God, I have to go to this world competition what should I do? You know, oh yeah, maybe I will practice like few more nights and and then I will just compete. Okay. You know, so this was like the average. But then, of course, the baristas that were like in the leading positions and in the finals, they, of course, had put more effort and uh, dedication into the practice. And they had like teams behind them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, as you mentioned before, you know, we're in a world where the rules were kind of being created as and when, kind of reactionary. Yeah. And can I ask, like, in the mid-2000s, what should a top-scoring espresso taste like? Yeah. I mean, so, like, the best espresso had to have those three parts, acidity, sweetness, and bitterness, and had to be, like, equal parts. And uh, all the judges were, like, just normal coffee people you know and we didn't really have any training systems and yes we had some sensory people but still at that time we didn't have the knowledge that we have today about sensory so i actually have a story about heather perry Ooh, i know her yeah so she was the american champion for many years so she told me a story about a time in 2007 Mm -hmm. when her espresso got some interesting feedback that she thought was going to help her win but actually counted against her but it was not because it was too bitter oh my god and i'm sharing the story because here were these rules that were made in a somewhat reactionary environment which came up against competitors who were devoting years of their life to win and the two collide in heather's story So my name is Heather Perry and I'm with Clatch Coffee. It's a family business. We've had it for 27 years and I get to work with my family every day. So the competition circuit is something I got into because my family is competitive by nature and so we thought it would be kind of a fun thing to do and enter. I participated in US Nationals for I think seven years, 2002 to 2008. I really wanted to be crowned World Barista Champion. (laughs) Not gonna lie, really, I really wanted that title. I put everything into competing. I mean, I remember the year that I competed in Tokyo between January and August, I had one weekend where I wasn't practicing. And I really felt like, okay, this is it for me. Like, this is my make or break year. I'm either going to get it this year or I'm not. Uh, And it wasn't just me. You know, my parents were a huge part of it. My dad and I worked on the espresso. We tweaked it throughout that entire year, every month kind of making changes. He is with me, pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. I always know if I'm going to do well in a competition because two to four days before the competition, I have a routine and he's like giving me feedback and it like breaks me down to tears. 
so the coffee evolved more than anything in the during that process in more tweaking the roast so we used a three bean blend and it was a sumatran a brazil and ethiopian and really kind of breaking down the roast profile of each individual one i remember from regionals to us lightening up our brazil a little more i would say from dark to milk chocolate and then from us to world going a little bit more fruit forward with that kind of ethiopian so when i got to tokyo first round went really well for me at so I think it was 50 countries we had that year. So it went from 50 and then they announced the finalists and there's six finalists. Finals went good. The biggest thing I remember about it is like I was super, super happy with the way my coffee tasted. At the time as well, they actually gave away awards and it was best espresso, best cappuccino and best signature drink. So I got best espresso, which was awesome and super exciting. Evidently, my espresso worked really well for some judges, but for other judges, and what was my ultimate demise in the finals is that my espresso was too sweet. And that was what I got docked for in on my score sheets in the finals. So that year, I ended up second. It was so close. The judges in the debrief told me nothing that I wanted to hear. And it starts with, let's go over your espresso. Oh, it was too sweet. What do you mean it's too sweet? And it's like, well, it just needed a little bit more bitter to be a little bit more balanced. And it's like, but that's like not a, no. My dad, he wanted answers. Like, what do you mean it's too sweet? Like, he was definitely at an angrier place. I was definitely in a more of like a defeated place where I was like, I just, you know what I mean? Especially when you start with the debrief and it starts to just kind of like not make sense. And it's like, this is just, I I don't agree. We're not going to, I can't change it. It's done. It is what it is at this point. I'm not going anywhere with it. And it just, at that point, like it is nine months of work that kind of just came crashing down to an extent where it's like, I don't even know what else I could have done at that point. I think at that point, judges brought a lot more of their cultural heritage. We talk about Nordic coffees being really bright and acidic at that time. We talk about, you know what I mean, coffees in Australia using a much higher dose, coffees in Italy having more bitter to them. So after Tokyo, I competed the following year and I took third in the U.S. And I think that was the last year that I competed. So at that point, it was like, all right, now it's time to focus on the company. Starting a family, I got married after that. Every once in a while, I joke that I'm going to go back to competition and my husband's like, I'm going to take the kids and run off and me and your mom are going to raise the kids. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's kind of crazy, huh? I wasn't judging at that time, but uh, obviously today you wouldn't have a comment like this on the score sheet. I mean, yeah, but here's Heather, you know, nine months of work. Yeah, I know. And today, sweetness in, in an espresso is like, yeah, fantastic. That's the thing they're waiting for. I know. I know. Sonia, it sounds to me like this competition, it was getting so big, it was actually in danger of maybe even going off the rails. Absolutely. I mean, is that fair? This is absolutely correct to say, because we were starting to be so big, so we kind of lost the the sight of what we used to be and what we wanted to be. So we were all talking about professionalism, but nobody kind of knew what professionalism is. But of course, you know it when you look at it, but you kind of like how to get to that point, you know. So it's it's not uh, something that you can ask a barista to be if the infrastructure of the whole competition is not professional. But how is this going to work? 
because all the judges, everyone's a volunteer, they have busy lives, have to pay for this themselves. How on earth was this going to work out? Yeah, 2007 was a challenge, you know. It was kind of like a, a crossroads. So, Sonia, in the next episode, we're going to cover what that change looked like that got us to where we are today. Oh, exciting. And in part two, we're also going to cover the story of the first time Africa makes it into the semifinals. Wow. And they're going to be some extraordinary life stories. A woman from Venezuela who, in her words, is almost saved by specialty coffee from a political situation. And the story of a woman in Uganda who is using these competitions to change coffee drinking habits in her own country. Wow. And it's going to be with a different co-host. But thank you so much for helping navigate this story up until this point. Oh my God, it was my pleasure. It just brings me back. I love this time. It was an amazing time to go through. <laughs> oh, James, this sounds like a credit music. <laughs> this is the credits. We want to thank Tuna Elin Lievak, Emma Marklin Webster, Simi Pensadon, Paul Bassett, and Heather Perry. And there are so many more people who we would like to thank, and we've listed all their names on the SCA website. And we also should thank our sponsor. Yeah, so the World Coffee Championship podcast series and this episode is supported by Victoria Arduino. Born in the early 20th century amid social and cultural transformation, Victoria Arduino broke with tradition and focused on progress, a mission it carries forward today. Victoria Arduino advances coffee knowledge and innovates across design, technology and performance to produce machines that nurture coffee professionals' passion for espresso excellence. You can learn more at victoriaarduino.com or give them a follow at victoriaarduino1905. And now it's your turn, James. Oh, thank you. This podcast was produced by me, James Harper, of Filter Productions for the Specialty Coffee Association. And Sonia, I hope you have a great camping trip. Are you ready oh, for it? Yes, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm starting cooking now. Then we're going to have champagne for breakfast. <laughs> and so it's going to be amazing. This is basic Icelandic camping, I see. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a great time. Enjoy the midnight sun. And I'll see you next year at the competitions. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.